regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I have a long-form in-depth conversation with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of the career. My guest today is Nick Handel, a CEO and co-founder of Transform Data. Before Transform, Nick was the head of data at Branch International in the micro lending space. Before Branch, he held a variety of roles at Airbnb, both as a data scientist and product manager. He was on the growth team that founded the experience product and the data platform team. His work included launching Airbnb's ML platform Zipline, building the company's data science team, helping with the company's initial international expansion, and leading the data science team that launched Airbnb's Trips product. Before joining Airbnb, Nick was a research economist at BlackRock. He's an avid trail runner, climber, skier, and adventurer, much of the time with his dog, Huckleberry. So Nick, glad to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Fabulous. So by way of introduction, uh, I believe that you went to UCLA for college to study mathematics, and you actually graduated at the age of 19. So can you share briefly about your upbringing your interest in math and your overall college experience? Yeah, so I attended a wide variety of different schools, first in the in the SFA area, then uh, up in Lake Tahoe in Truckee, and then I moved to Arizona for high school. And so through all of that, there was kind of a lot of moving between different types of schools and, and different kind of, you know, curriculum. And so I ended up skipping a grade middle school in a transition from a charter school to homeschool for a year and then to a public school. And in high school, I just had a really, really wonderful math teacher. And so I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to study something general and I knew that I really liked math. And so when I started at UCLA, I was 16 and I, you know, I just decided that math and economics were probably two of the most useful and broadly applicable fields that I could study. And so I chose those two as my major. And the, you know, the reason why I ended up graduating even quickly from college after that was really because it really kind of follows on to my next experience, uh, which was as an intern at BlackRock when I was in, in school. And it was... 2011. And so I was somewhat concerned about a double dip recession and I really didn't want to graduate and not have a job. And so I decided to kind of rush my last year, which is how I ended up graduating at 19. It sounds quite, quite like a journey. Yeah. I'm just curious, like going to college at such a young age, what is like the pros and cons? What is the benefit and maybe disadvantage as well? Yeah. Well, let's see. So my first year in college, I had to send all of my paperwork home so that my parents could sign it because I wasn't 18. <laughs> so that's probably the biggest disadvantage. <laughs> they, they still had to know everything that I was up to. You know, beyond that, and, you know, that's kind of a joke. It didn't really matter. But beyond that, I don't think it really, really mattered that much. You know, I think that 
by the time kids get to college, they're pretty mature. And, you know, the reality is, is that I was a year or two younger than most of my classmates. And that's not really that big of a difference at that point. So, yeah, I, it didn't, I don't think it affected me. And I think I had great friends who, who didn't really care that I was a bit younger. Would you have any favorite math classes that you took at Isale? Yeah. Oh, definitely. So I took linear algebra with a really great professor. And then he was writing a book. Uh, he was writing a textbook and he asked me to do an kind of like an honors research seminar. I can't remember what it was called, but where I basically just read a chapter of his textbook mm -hmm. and then like highlighted things I didn't understand. And then we would just get together once a week and just go through the chapter and kind of talk about what made sense and what didn't. And that was probably the most fun because it was just, I mean, one, he was a really fun person and I really enjoyed that time, but it was also probably the time when I learned more about linear algebra than like any of my other classes, just having that one on one time, which, you know, UCLA is a really big school. And so I think that that was an opportunity that kind of gave me a smaller school feel of just having that direct attention. And ultimately it made me really love linear algebra as a, a topic. Yeah, thanks for sharing that experience. I think having that deep interaction with the professors in college is really valuable for your own intellectual development, right? So you mentioned a little bit earlier about like interning BlackRock and then going there full-time afterwards. So you said like you worked for two years as a quant analyst slash research economist focused specifically on emerging market depth at BlackRock. Why BlackRock for your first job and what some of the exciting projects that you work on during your two years there? Yeah, so, you know, I mentioned I kind of came into college not really knowing what I wanted to do. I came out of college knowing a little bit more, but still not very much about what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so why BlackRock was, let's see, I interviewed after my sophomore year and got an internship. And I, you know, wanted to apply my math and skills that I was picking up, but I had heard a lot about finance and I was a little skeptical of getting into some parts of it. And what I found at BlackRock was a very high empathy environment and, and just the kind of culture that I wanted to be a part of. I think I felt like it was unique relative to the rest of finance. And then beyond that, you know, it's a very large firm and there are a lot of really smart people there. And so I felt like I could navigate to the right place for me uh, if the team that I landed on didn't end up being the right place. And I felt like there would be a lot of people that I could learn from. And so I mentioned this, you know, I was kind of concerned about a double dip recession in 2011. And I was an intern when BlackRock put in a hiring freeze during that summer. And so that's kind of what sparked that concern and made me want to graduate in the following year in my junior year. And so that was one piece. And then the other piece was that I found this team that rarely hired undergrads mm -hmm. and they couldn't hire anyone because of the hiring freeze. And so I was kind of like their only option. And so got to join this team that was, you know, mostly kind of PhDs and really impressive quant researchers. Mm -hmm. And so that just felt like an opportunity that was, you know, too hard to pass up. In terms of the specific work that you work on, yeah, I was just kind of curious, what are some of the things that you learned from a quant analysis yeah. perspective? So let's see. So they did some interesting math, definitely. It was not kind of what I would classify as the kinds of machine learning problems that people are pursuing in, you know, companies like Airbnb, mm -hmm. but 
It was definitely machine learning. And most of what we did was feature creation. And feature creation was a lot more deliberate. So we found you know, large amounts of kind of macro econ data, really just about everything from measures of political risk in, in different countries to you know, direct kind of macro econ reporting coming out of these different countries. It was pretty much every country and every asset class. I just kind of focused on a few. And so we basically just built features out of those. And we tried to use macroeconomic kind of foundations to build those signals. And, you know, one of the kind of outcomes of that for me was that it was very early on in my career, right? It was my first job and it was a very slow feedback loop, right? Because macroecon, it takes years for things to play out. And so we would make some prediction or, you know, make some signal. And I just would have no idea if I did a good job or not. And it was kind of just the encouragement of my coworkers that kept me going, which ultimately kind of led to me looking around and thinking, hey, how could I do something that would give me more signals of you know, whether I'm doing a good job and, and allow me to kind of learn faster. But one of the more interesting things that I worked on was on reinsurance markets, which I'm not going to try and explain how reinsurance markets work right now, but it's kind of the epitome of finance and, and risk redistribution. And I still reflect on that a lot because I just think that it's, it's a very interesting concept. And I think that it is one of the ways that finance can actually add a lot of value to society. So, Yeah, thanks for sharing the context in some of those projects. And yeah, I can definitely look up reassurance management afterwards. Just to definitely. See <laughs> yeah, anyway, so you mentioned that slow feedback loop and you want to look for new opportunities to get more signals for your work, right? So in 2014, you moved to Airbnb to work as a data scientist on the growth team. Well, first of all, like, what about uh, data science at Airbnb that attracted you to Joy? And second of all, could you mind sharing like, an example of how data science can be used to drive community growth on Airbnb platform? Yeah, so you know, I started interviewing at Airbnb really at the end of my time at BlackRock. And I actually left BlackRock and kind of thought about different startup ideas for about two months before totally making the switch over to Airbnb. And that was my first time kind of thinking about starting a company. And I'm, I'm happy I didn't at the time because there was a lot more to learn. There still is a lot more to learn, but that, you know, I think would have been a tough time to start a company with some of the ideas I was thinking through. And so, you know, really what pulled me away from doing that was just, I met these people at Airbnb who were so unbelievably impressive and just very, very kind and willing to teach. And it just felt like an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. At BlackRock, I was using, I was using technologies like MATLAB and SVN, and I would say kind of more old school technologies. And when I went and interviewed at Airbnb, I hadn't really used Python that much. I hadn't really used R that much, but I obviously knew scripting languages and, and I could write code. I took you know computer science classes and you know knew a decent amount of C just from from kind of you know taking those classes. And so, you know, in my interviews, the interviewer was kind of actively recognizing that, hey, this was, I'm learning a new skill, like, well, I'm interviewing right now because they wanted me to interview an R because they said that they had a MATLAB license and then they didn't. It was kind of like a mix up. And I was very impressed with their ability to recognize that, hey, it didn't really matter that this candidate who's coming in, you know, this junior candidate was coming in without experience in, in kind of R or Python. And so, I, you know, I think the fact that they kind of took a chance on me and took the time to teach me 
in those really early days just made me, you know, really excited to one, want to go there and then, you know, to kind of really throw myself at all of the different work that they wanted to give me. So you work on Grow, right? How does actually, you know, data center you between the Grow team, like an example, case study, potentially paint that picture would be great. Yeah. So the majority of what I did in the early days was product experimentation. I actually just wrote a blog post about this, but I joined a few weeks before Airbnb released this tool called Experiment Reporting Framework. And it's actually the origin of what we're working on now. There was a kind of sub part of that tool called Metrics Repo. And it allowed me to basically say, hey, these are the metrics I want to track for my experiment. And it then went and you know, built the Hive pipelines and, and kind of the whole, or the Airflow pipelines to go and you know, build those metrics at the granularity of the subject of the experiment and over the specific window of time that you know, each of those subjects was exposed to the experiment. And it would then you know, just return to me all of these metrics basically for each of the treatment groups. And it allowed me to basically go from doing a bunch of manual analysis, maybe calculating five, 10 metrics on any given experiment to walking in every morning and looking at the you know, 10, 20 experiments that I was running live at that moment with up-to-date data as of you know, the night before when all of the pipelines ran. And so it was this really amazing time where we went from running maybe one experiment every kind of week or two to running 10, 20 experiments at any given time. And Mm -hmm. probably some of the more interesting things that came out of that, I was working on emails. I was working on, you know, really anything related to notifications. Mm -hmm. I was working on the user login flow, signup flow, anything related to kind of onboarding. So I was kind of doing what, you know, we called the two teams engagement and activation. And I was you know, doing basically just lots of kind of little product iteration. And then every once in a while, we would make some kind of big bet based off of some discovery. My favorite experiment that we ran was we basically found out that there was a big drop-off in one of our email experiments after 48 hours. If we sent the email more than 48 hours after they were on the site, basically we got far fewer bookings than if we sent it within 48 hours. And we realized that we were logging our users out after 48 hours. And so they were coming back logged out and then they had this extra friction to go and book versus if they came back and they were still logged in from their previous session. And it ended up being this like, I mean, it's literally, you know, a one character change, two, three characters to change 48 hours to, you know, a week. And it had this massive, massive impact. And it just made me realize how powerful just that the right insight, like, you know, uh, can be. And so, That was really one of the moments where I got really, really excited about this job and the fact that I can go and find this thing that then has this really outsized impact relative to the amount of work that I was doing. And it, you know, then led to a a whole kind of line of experiments around signup and login flow and keeping users uh, logged in for longer periods of time. And so that was probably one of my, it's still one of my favorite things that I've ever done because it was so simple. And I think ultimately, you know, this was kind of the age of the growth hacker Mm -hmm. and the ability to change just a few characters in your code base and get, you know, millions of dollars back to the business is, I think, the ultimate growth hacker thing to do. So 
Thanks for sharing the context. That's a great anecdote on, on how Yahoo can contribute to the impact of RI and the simplicity of the solution. While doing the research on your time there, I came across like a talk you gave, there may be about growth. So I'd be sure to include that in the show notes as well, just to let the listeners dig deeper if they're interested in some of the things that Nick just discussed. That talk actually talks about another one of those. We just changed sign up with Facebook or login with Facebook to continue with Facebook. And that also had massive impact, also probably added millions of dollars to Airbnb's business. So that's a good talk. Wonderful. Not to focus more on sort of the growth side of things, you led the data architecture design and experimentation platform for Airbnb trips, which is, I believe, one of the biggest product launch for Airbnb in 2016. So can you kind of go over some of the relevant context and data-specific challenges associated with the launch of Airbnb trips? Yeah, definitely. The idea of adding experiences to Airbnb's product existed you know, in a bunch of different iterations. And then in 2016, there was a shift to take it much, much more seriously. And there was a team of probably about eight folks who had been working on it for more than a year. They just laid this amazing foundation of user research and an understanding of what that product could actually look like. And the decision was to basically launch this thing at the end of 2016. And so, you know, in the beginning of 2016, they started ramping up this team to build basically an entirely new dimension of um, Airbnb's product. And so I was, you know, lucky enough to be called in as somebody who could potentially help on the data side of this. I was, you know, about two years into my time there. And I had a bunch of experience with product experimentation, kind of the whole data stack at Airbnb. And so the charter for me was to basically join this team that was, I think, about 12 people when I joined and help them to figure out how they're going to do product experimentation on the platform that we already had ahead of their public launch at the end of the year and just kind of start to do some user testing that included product experimentation. And then to also kind of lay the foundation for all of the data ingestion that was gonna come off of that. So all of the event logging, all of the data engineering work to take the kind of production databases and turn them into nice tables for consumption or from the rest of the company, et cetera. And so it was, it was this fun time where we had the charter to basically use Airbnb's infrastructure or build our own infrastructure if it made sense. And we generally used Airbnb's infrastructure, but it ended up being a great place to test this event logging framework that Airbnb now uses across all of its products that the infrastructure team was building at the time. And so I got to work on that uh, quite a bit and ended up partnering with an engineer on the infrastructure team to build that out. And so, you know, the kind of the core goal was to one, launch this product and two, be able to kind of fit it into the fold of Airbnb's infrastructure in a way that we could benefit from all of the, you know, all of the great data tools that had been built. And then kind of one of the sub goals was to enable machine learning at launch. We really wanted to make things more personalized. The hypothesis was that booking a home on Airbnb is, you know, there's certainly some kind of personalization that's required there, but that booking an experience actually required a lot more personalization because people have stronger preferences for what they do with their time versus the kinds of places that they're staying. There's also probably more variant in kind of these experiences. 
And so that's what really got me into doing more and more machine learning. And originally it was relatively basic, you know, at launch, but the goal was to get the data sets into a place where we could, you know, build more sophisticated ML models at launch. I mean, it was a great experience and the team grew, you know, it was, it was Airbnb's resources were behind it. So the team grew from 12 when I joined it, you know, maybe seven months before launch to probably 150 people at launch. And that was a really, really exciting time. It was also a lot of work to get that out. It's a, it was a big product launch. I see. Tenfold. That's a lot of headcounts. Yeah. Kind of going off that thread about, you know, company growing. And so during this period, we also interviewed hundreds of candidates to view Airbnb internal data science team from 20 to more than 85. From the expert in hiring for your team, what are some of the essential attributes of an exceptional data science talent? Yeah, I learned a lot in this, you know, just in kind of this phase of trying to do team building. And, you know, I was lucky to have all of the benefit of the fact that Airbnb was an amazing place to work. It was, you know, very attractive to candidates. And so because of that, we got, you know, really, really exceptional applicants. And we also went out and tried to recruit really, really exceptional people. On the other side of that, we had a really high hiring bar and we, and that hiring bar applied not just technically, but we had a high hiring bar for culture fit. Airbnb was a, an extremely culture kind of focused and cognizant place. And so, you know, we cared a lot about hiring empathetic people. We cared a lot about protecting our culture. And so I think that the biggest challenges around hiring were just figuring out how do you kind of balance those two things and assess those two things together. And so, you know, a lot of the kind of hiring process was built around figuring out, is this person a good technical fit and trying to put them in scenarios where they would really have to collaborate with people on the team to get a sense of how well they can collaborate. And I didn't really interview a ton at BlackRock. And so this was kind of new for me. And I think I was interviewing probably two to three people a day in kind of the peak times of scaling this team from 20 to 85 plus when I shifted over to product. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I think that the biggest things for me were, you know, I, I came in not knowing our Python well, um, and they were pretty essential to the job when I joined. And so I think the biggest thing for me was interviewing for the kind of analytical mindset that people have, or, you know, the machine learning kind of chops of understanding how to do that, even if their language preferences weren't the same as the ones that we were using. And, you know, I think the other things that we learned were kind of around desires to contribute outside of their day-to-day -day work. Mm. We had a team of people who did a lot of side projects, did a lot of interesting things, and just added a lot of value to the team. We had, you know, internal libraries called Airbnb and AirPy, which were these like rich libraries that allowed us to do all kinds of interesting data analytics internally. And probably, you know, half of the team contributed to those and the other half of the team were doing other interesting things to add value to the uh, data science org. So I think that, you know, analytical mindset and just wanting to have kind of outsized contributions outside of kind of, or what their kind of day-to-day -day job description was. Thanks for capturing those bullet points. Those two things are very yeah, interesting that you provided. In the later part of your tenure with Airbnb, 
you assume product management responsibility. More specifically, you led the machine learning teams and growing the data organizations significantly. During this transition from like a data science role to more like a PM role, how did you like level up your PM skill set during this period? I think that the best way to transition to product is to do some product work and to have great product mentors. And so, for me, that started with the product lead on growth, Gustav Alstromer. He was really busy. He had a ton of product work to do. Airbnb was growing quickly, and there were kind of you know small projects that he could hand off to me, and with you know a little bit of oversight, I could kind of own and and run with. And so, at one point, I had. I was a data scientist, but I was also doing some product work. And I think I had two engineers that I was working with, and half of one designer. And I was kind of my own data scientist for the PM that I was also acting as. So I got to kind of build this little nimble team uh, that would go out and do, you know, do little projects. And one of those projects was that session extension project that I mentioned before, and and actually the other thing, the continue with Facebook button was also a part of that team. And so we were just doing these tiny little things that had really significant impact. And I think, you know, it really came down to Gustav trusting me, kind of giving me the ability to run. And then, you know, when I actually made the transition fully into product, that was kind of a transition to maybe 30, 40%. And then I went to trips and kind of did the launch. And after a little while of, you know, working on various machine learning projects and, and thinking about how the trips team could launch with some amount of machine learning the product lead for infrastructure james mayfield came over and said hey you've done some product work you've you know worked on this big launch you were just kind of sending emails to the whole company saying you know these are the metrics i think you kind of have the attributes to come over and be a product manager and i'm forming this new team around machine learning infrastructure and so that was kind of the official transition. And product is a really interesting role because you have to have a lot of the skills of the people you work with. You're kind of expected to be some of a designer, some of a data analyst, you know, somewhat you know, technical enough to understand all of the engineering work. But you're also expected to have this entire other set of skills around communication, building clarity, the ability to build relationships and influence around an organization. And so that makes it a really complicated role to kind of jump right into. But if you have the right mentors and you have the right 20% of your time to do it, it makes it easy to transition into it over time. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. This is a very nuanced answer, like, you know, having the right mentors and strategically allocating some of your day-to-day work for product-related initiatives. I mean, it seems like at this point you work really hard, right? Both interviewing people, working on projects and then taking on product PM responsibility. Just curious, like during this phase, like how do you actually like structure your day, your time? Do you like also work in evenings and weekends? Or just kind of curious, how do you like quickly ramp up and put a paddle in your career growth, essentially? Yeah. So I think that I've always kind of taken most of the things that I do to extremes. (laughs) And I think that a lot more of my personal development and learning has come from trying to learn about, you know, when is that healthy and when is that that unhealthy? And so I've found that the way that I work best is with flexibility. So that means that I certainly have routines. You know, I have things that I do to mention my 
intro. I'm a trail runner. I, I have things that I do to make sure that I get the time to do those things in. But ultimately, you know, I'll run in the morning, I'll run in the evening, I'll whenever I feel like doing these things. And I think that that flexibility is what actually, I think it would probably drive a lot of people crazy. But for me, it's just, you know, about kind of recognizing what I need in a moment and, and going out and doing it. And oftentimes the thing that I'm most excited about is my work. And so that means that, you know, when I think about what I need, it's often to go and, you know, get the thing done or, or pursue the idea that I'm working on. And so it's almost like the absence of structure is what kind of allows me to get things done, I think. Interesting. Flexibility and sort of like, like overloading a lot of things together. And so you thrive in like disorder, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's not disorder. Like I've got a well-organized to-do list, you know, and I have my systems for keeping things really organized. It's just, it's a matter of, you know, when do I want to pursue that to-do list or when do I want to go for a run or, you know, when do I want to, you know, have some downtime with my partner and cook a meal or something and just kind of giving myself the flexibility to do all those things mm. has, I think, allowed me to, you know, do as much as I can in a way where I'm really happy, you know, pursuing so many different things. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Kind of circling back to your work at Airbnb, so you mentioned getting to uh, infrastructure and a particular project you work on is called Big Hat, which is a framework agnostic end-to-end platform for ML. I was reading the paper and I believe that Big Hat has been deployed and widely adopted at the whole organization, uh, enabling the data science and engineering teams to develop and set ML models in a timely and reliable manner. Yeah. So at a high level, could you mind kind of working over some of the core components of Big Hat and then additionally, what were some of the technical and organizational challenges that your team faced in order to drive the adoption of Big Head at Airbnb? Yeah, so I'll start with what Big Head is. So it's Airbnb's machine learning platform. And we started working on it in 2017 when I transitioned to this product team. Originally, it was four people that got pulled from different parts of the data infrastructure team who wanted to work on machine learning infrastructure. And myself, who at the time was a trial product manager, which meant that I was going through a, a three-month trial and I had to kind of you know, end it by showing the product team what I had built. And we basically outlined a plan to build these five core components and then kind of designed the interfaces between them. And so it starts with uh, data management, which is a tool that we built called Zipline. Now it's kind of more commonly referred to as a feature store. There was no reference to feature stores on the internet when, when we started building this. And so it was kind of very early days, one of the first you know, takes on what a feature store could be. The second piece was a basically access to large compute environments. And that's what we, it was a tool called RedSpot. And it was basically hosted Jupyter notebooks on large machines, kind of allow you to manage the environment, the machine, and get access to that from uh, your laptop. And so that was for prototyping. The third piece was model lifecycle management. And this later on was renamed Big Head Service. Uh, originally it was called Model Repo. And it basically allowed you to you know, train new models, save them, version control them, et cetera, in the same way that you would kind of version control code or data, but just to version control the models and be able to access different versions of them and, and run them. And then the last piece of the workflow 
was really two systems. One was called ML Automator, which allowed you to put in a chunk of code from a Jupyter notebook and have that be a production model. And then the serving environment, which we called Deep Thought, it basically allowed you to run that code on a machine in kind of a performant and low latency environment. And so that's what allowed us to kind of productionize and, and serve models. And then holding all of that together was a common library that we just called the big head uh, library. And, you know, you can tell by some of those names that we didn't take ourselves too seriously. I think we built really great infrastructure and uh, we had a lot of fun doing it. And that team grew from four to 13 in about a year. And so that was really fun to get to, you know, kind of scale some of my product skill sets at the same time as scaling this team, at the same time as building this tool. And so, you know, this was kind of the zero to one moment for this tool. And we served, you know, a number of different teams. The really hard part was trying to serve the three main machine learning applications at Airbnb. Those were pricing, search, and really anything related to like kind of advertising, spend, bidding, et cetera. And those teams had a ton of nuanced requirements around what their systems did, which made it really hard in the early days for our system to support them. And so instead, we kind of started with the longer tail of machine learning applications. The data scientists on business travel who wanted to predict if you know some upcoming reservation was going to be business travel or personal travel or something like that. And just, you know, they're trying to get some kind of incremental product experience that's slightly better but they're not trying to serve some massive core system like Airbnb's pricing. And so we kind of started with the long tail. And then, you know, the challenges were basically building out the various features that we needed to move kind of up that stack and get teams to use more and more of what we were building. And it reminds me a lot of what, you know, I'm doing today of trying to figure out who are the people I can support, you know, soonest and, and how do I kind of support the most different use cases. But ultimately, you know, the goal is to support everyone and get everyone onto, you know, one system that has all of the kind of features that they need and hopefully, you know, more than just the features they need, but the ones that really empower them to do better, more exciting things with their, you know, in this case, machine learning applications, in the case of Transform Today, they're kind of analytics applications. Yeah, thanks for really unpacking all these key components of Bighead Infrastructure. I think there's also one of the first well-known ML platform in startup work. So, I think you want to say that definitely inspired a lot of people in the whole ecosystem to learn from and then derive their own original version in their own company or their own modern ML stack. Thank you. Yeah. After about three and a half years at Airbnb, you uh, became the head of data at Branch, which is a startup that delivers world-class financial services to the mobile generation. What about this opportunity that attracted you and decided to leave Airbnb? Yeah, so... I was really happy at Airbnb and this opportunity came along to be the head of data at this startup. And, you know, when I first started talking to them, they had just raised their series A and then they went out and raised a series B and I, you know, could just, I could just see the numbers because, you know, they were kind of showing me how the business was doing that, you know, this was something that could really take off. And I think that what drove me on a personal level was just that, I think access to financial services is incredibly impactful. And, you know, there are obviously 
basic human needs that are, are still kind of not being met in lots of parts of the world. But access to capital, I think, you know, beyond some of those basic needs is an incredibly powerful lever to enable people to pursue the things that they want to do, their dreams. You know, I'm, I'm living that right now on a different scale in a place that is like incredibly resource rich. And it's incredibly fulfilling to be able to pursue my dreams right now. And so, you know, the kind of product of Branch was basically you download a mobile app. And at the time it was primarily in Kenya. Now it's in a kind of another bunch of other countries, but you download a mobile app and then you can basically get access to various financial services. It started off with lending, but now it includes kind of like the equivalent of a checking savings account. And, you know, their goal is to continue to add more different services there. And so, you know, I genuinely believe in that mission of trying to provide these services. Most people can't open a bank account if they have the equivalent of 10 or $100. And I think that Branch is building technology that basically enables broader access to financial services by, you know, merging a lot of those kinds of accounts and then establishing relationships with existing financial services in those countries. And I was impressed by the people and their culture another high empathy environment. I think I'm quite attracted to that. Yeah, thanks for sharing all those key criteria, mission, the environment that attracted you to make this transition, right? Specifically related to your work at Branch, I came across this talk that you deliver at the Bay Area AI Meetup in 2019 called Infrastructure at an Early Stage Startup. So this talk essentially argues that first data is at the center of ML development. It's also allied branch and in-house feature service architecture. And it also emphasized the importance of feature store within the ML infrastructure landscape. So can you unpack some of the key ideas presented in the talk? Yeah, definitely. I wanted to bring some of the ideas that we had learned at Airbnb to branch. It was kind of an, you know, a bit of an experiment, but I believed that a lot of the kind of large infrastructure that we were building at Airbnb could be built in a very simplified way at branch, given that, you know, none of the pieces of infrastructure that we built at Airbnb were things that we could buy at branch. It's just the market wasn't quite there. And so I wanted, you know, at a foundational level, the more impactful pieces of ML infrastructure that we had built, and also the more impactful pieces of kind of analytical infrastructure. So this metrics repository, this experimentation tool, And this talk about building some of that infrastructure at an early stage was really focused on the first piece, which was the first piece of Big Head that we built, which was Zipline. And we basically built a very simple feature repository. It took us maybe, you know, two engineers for about a month or two to build. We kind of scaled everything down. We had total control over all of the systems so we could build it in a very specific way. And, you know, the core of it was just that we had problems with our machine learning models because they would change or break or the systems were just fragile or we were training on different features than we were running inference on our models. And it was leading to really bad performance of our kind of ML applications. And so basically what we did was we built a very basic Python library that we could run for both our batch you know, model training and also our inference. And it didn't have to be that performant. People could wait, you know, three, four seconds for their loan application to be approved or not. Some of our fraud applications had to be a little bit faster, but we 
got by by trying to make those models smaller. And so we basically built this thing and uh, I did this talk. And again, this was before anyone was really talking about feature stores. I think at this point, Airbnb had released their blog post or their um, paper on big head slash zipline. And Uber had written their post about Michelangelo and Google had written a few different articles around kind of feature serving. And so this was kind of a take at, hey, this is not just for Uber, Airbnb, and Google. Really, everyone can benefit from this. And it ended up being really impactful at brand. Our ML models improved dramatically. And you know, ultimately, improving our ML models at branch is what allows us to then approve more of the right loans, which allows us to then you know, expand access to financial services even more. So it was fun to see that very direct impact on the customers of our tool. I see. Yeah, thanks for sharing those details of the talk and the state of awareness about this component feature store. At the point, I'm sure you still definitely keep in touch closely with the sort of ML tooling in the past, you know, maybe even few months, but where do you see the adoption feature store in the enterprise moving forward? Well, I'm actually a little bit jaded on machine learning after all of that work. I think that the hardest part about the machine learning space right now, there are two things that I think are really hard about the machine learning space. And this is ultimately why I chose to pursue this metric store idea more directly is that first, Machine learning features can be very different across a company and everyone is happy because as long as you've chosen the best machine learning feature for the model that you're running and somebody else has chosen a very slight variation of that same feature, it doesn't matter to you as long as you both have the best models. That's not the case for metrics. People want consistency in metrics. If you have a slight variation of a metric all over a company, it just leads to chaos, right? And so people have this natural force to push consistency of metrics that I think that they didn't really have for features. And that was one of the core hypotheses that we were testing at Airbnb. And ultimately, it was something that we can enforce at Branch, but we couldn't really enforce at Airbnb. And so there ended up being very little reuse of features across Zipline. I think that it's an incredibly important piece of tooling, more for a technical perspective, as in it ensures that the right features are going into the models in training and in production. But I think that it had a much less profound impact from an organizational perspective of, is this going to really make my data scientists, machine learning engineers more productive? And is this going to allow them to build more machine learning applications faster? Maybe to some extent, but I think less so than I originally believed in, in 2017. That being said, I think that we will continue to see more and more valuable applications of machine learning. I just think that the overall risk of machine learning applications is much greater than the risk reward profile of kind of analytics applications. And, you know, I have gone back and forth on both of these. I worked primarily on analytics for a number of years and then you know, primarily on machine learning for a number of years, and, and I'm back to analytics now. Thanks for sharing that very interesting mental models. You have to evaluate both the technical and the organizational value props, right? So you can yeah. just, just look at one one side. So yeah, it seems like you have a very nuanced way of approaching this, which I really like. Let's double click on that notion of metric store a bit more. So so since August of 2019, you've been a co-founder and CEO of Transform, 
whose mission is to make data accessible by way of Magic Store. And uh, in fact, you have written this blog post about working on Airbnb's early Magic Store that inspired the conception to transform. This is now well-known as Minerva, just the name of the Magic Store at Airbnb. So yeah, can you kind of share the story behind the founding of the company, the story behind it? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I mentioned joining Airbnb just a few weeks before this metrics repo thing came into existence at Airbnb. You know, it was a profound change in my workflow. That was kind of the, you know, foundational thing that got me excited about this. I don't think I had strong opinions about it at the time. I had a bunch of different feature requests and I was working closely with the infrastructure team. My other two co-founders are both, you know, we're both on that team. And so that was kind of how I started working with them. And it was a really incredible tool. And I didn't really kind of have a full grasp of how far it could go. And I think that that has been gradually building over the years. You know, first, as I saw it take hold and kind of support the experimentation applications, later on in its life, I started launching fake experiments because I wanted it to build metrics for me. And so I would just say, hey, here's a fake experiment. These users were all exposed to you know, some kind of treatment over this time because I just didn't want to write all of the SQL for it to basically build those metrics. That was kind of the first time when I really started to see, hey, this metrics store, this metrics kind of tooling can actually be really impactful for other applications. And, you know, a few other data scientists took this even further. One built a library called Metrics Query Language, which is actually, you know, the name of our library at Transform now, that didn't actually get any kind of traction in Airbnb. It was kind of just like a toy idea, but it basically allowed you to pull metrics into Jupyter Notebooks. And that's now a pretty central part of our product. So I think that that was kind of a big part of the transition. I think it's kind of a bit of history from there at Airbnb because I switched over to working on primarily machine learning applications. And you know a few others kind of took that metric store idea much, much further with Minerva. But ultimately, you know what I saw at Airbnb was there was a tool that was built for Airbnb's infrastructure. And it was built to build airflow pipelines that built Hive jobs you know, that served these metrics to the data warehouse. And then when they wanted them to be fast, they started exporting them to Druid because they could spin up Druid. And this gradual iteration from this original metrics repo to what is now Minerva. And because of that, I saw a bunch of different reasons why that wouldn't generalize when I was at Branch and trying to build something similar. But I also realized just how much work it was to build something like that. And so I think I realized when I was at Branch that I was pretty spoiled at Airbnb with all of the tooling and great people that I was working with who could go out and kind of have the resources to build this. And it's much, much harder you know, when you're on a team of five folks trying to build out the entire data stack to actually build tools that solve some of these problems. And there really weren't any tools that we could buy. And so when I was at Branch, I just had this realization that this tool needs to exist and nobody is currently building it in a generalized public way. And so I was also a little bit burnt out. I decided I needed to leave Branch. I needed to kind of go and think about this idea. I had a few other ideas at the time. I thought about doing things in the feature repository space. I thought about doing things in a few other kind of applications of ML um, that might be interesting. And then I had a few other kind of ideas around analytics tooling that could exist. And after I really thought about it, I just realized 
I've basically been spending the last seven years thinking about different variants of building derived data and serving it to different applications, machine learning, experimentation, et cetera. And the one that's really missing and just broadly needed is this metrics tooling that we had. And so I went and I talked to my old manager at Airbnb and my mentor, James Mayfield, who was you know the director of product for infrastructure, who I was reporting to when I was on machine learning infrastructure. And originally, I just went to him to get advice. And then we kind of started talking about it. And it was just like, this is a really good idea. We should really do this. And then James had worked really closely. And I had worked closely with our third co-founder, Paul, at Airbnb. James actually worked with him all the way back to 2008 when Paul joined Facebook. Um, and James was at Facebook at the time also. And so it was pretty clear that Paul and James had been working together in some way for about 13 years and probably should just keep going at that point. <laughs> and so the three of us started, you know, really kind of outlining the product and the business idea, et cetera, at, you know, at the end of 2019, early 2020, and, and really kind of formally started in, in the beginning of 2020 in earnest uh, when they left Airbnb and started building. And that was a wild time to try and start a company. You know, we... <laughs> We, um, we've, you know, formally started in January and by, you know, February it was, there were, you know, all kinds of concerns around what was, you know, happening and, you know, whether we could meet up in person and just all of these kinds of things. And then by March, we were a fully remote company trying to recruit, you know, our first employee. Well, nobody wanted to switch jobs. So that was kind of a tough time to start. But I think, you know, the fact that we got through that was a good sign. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we'll definitely touch on some of the, the, those aspects of company building the later part of our conversation. But really, thanks for sharing the context and all the steps, the milestone along the way of like, you know, how to come up with the idea and how to even recruit your co-founders. Let's kind of dissect the key technical capabilities that are baked into the Transform product. A matrix framework is transform capability to create company-wide alignment around key metrics that scale within an organization through a unified framework. Would you mind explaining the challenges of performing matrix governance scale and how Transform can help address some of these issues? Yeah, so I might just start, before kind of diving into these three sections, I might just start with a description of what a metric store is. Because I think that it's still pretty vague and you know people talk about this and there's a lot of enthusiasm, but I don't think that you know there's a lot of clarity on in terms of what this actually is. And, and so I think Hopefully by sharing that, you know, that'll kind of lay a good foundation for people to understand the different pieces of the product that we're building. So there are kind of four key challenges or components or capabilities of a, a metric store. And those are semantics, performance, governance, and interfaces. So starting off with semantics. Semantics are basically the abstractions that you choose to capture what is a metric. And we kind of see a metric as a, it's a bit of an abstract concept because it can be aggregated to different granularities. You can do different things to it. And just to kind of put that in perspective with an example, at Airbnb, we tracked bookings and that's a metric, but there are a bunch of different ways to look at bookings. Maybe you want you know, year over year bookings, you maybe you want bookings by country, maybe you want uh, year to date bookings, maybe you want bookings filtered for only kind of instant bookings or something like that. 
And so one way to do this is, is to kind of write SQL, right? You can define these things in SQL and you could define all of those variants in SQL. But there are most likely hundreds of metrics at most companies, simple companies, and thousands at more complicated companies, right? And you know, there's some kind of different level of importance to all those metrics of the metrics that everyone consumes all the way down to the metrics that Nick made one time for one analysis and, and now it's kind of still sitting somewhere. And so how you capture those abstractions are really, really important because it allows you to reuse logic across many different variants of those same metrics. And that's honestly the primary thing that I think we really took away from Airbnb's metric store. And you know the challenges with semantics are that it's very hard to change them once you've built something. And so we take kind of the initial design of our semantics very, very seriously. And that's kind of the core of what the metrics framework does. The second piece is around performance. And you know, the interesting thing here is that companies, you know, with very, very large data sets just want metrics really quickly. And you can't just have some SQL query that goes to a normalized, you know, source table and builds out some metric aggregating hundreds of billions of rows. And then on the other side of this, if you are, you know, a startup and you have smaller data sets, you still just want it to be fast because you want to be able to quickly answer some questions and move on. And so the challenges of performance across, you know, a wide variety of different companies are fairly different, but ultimately the goal is to just serve metrics quickly. And so, you know, the question then becomes, do I calculate this in advance or do I calculate this on the fly? And if you know what you want, you can calculate it in advance and then serve that. And that's, you know, oftentimes how companies serve metrics to different applications. If you don't know what you want, then you really have to do that on the fly. And the challenge then is, how do I reuse you know, those data sets that I'm building on the fly? How do I reuse the kind of you know, data sets that I built statically? Could I potentially use some of those statically built data sets and merge them with dynamically built data sets to get whatever result I'm looking for fast? And then the third piece is governance, which I think was kind of the point of this question. Governance, I think there's a lot of interesting things around lifecycle management, tiering of metrics, ownership, uh, workflows in Git, and you know I'm happy to kind of dive deeper into that. And then the last one is really just interfaces. It's kind of simple, but the reality is, is for this truly to be a single source of truth for all of your metric definitions, you need to be able to pull those metrics into every single place that you would want to consume them. Otherwise, you have to go around this tool, and you know it's not a single source of truth if you have to go around it because you're expressing logic in some other place. And so when I think of these three pieces, this metrics framework, this metrics catalog, and our metrics APIs, ultimately what those things are you know, geared towards is basically solving these, you know, solving these kind of four core capabilities. And so starting off with the metrics framework, the purpose of that metrics framework is to lay out the definitions of metrics, the semantics, and then to prepare to serve those metrics efficiently through the various interfaces. And then there's kind of some amount of governance that's applied just because these metrics in our framework are defined in YAML and those are contributed to Git. And so there's some kind of standard code review process that companies follow, which applies some kind of, I would say, technical governance to the definitions of the metrics.
Thanks for laying out like all those four pillars: book of robust and in what performance metric store, semantics, performance, governance, and interfaces. Yeah, yeah. perfect. <laughs> now I got. <laughs> and you mentioned metrics store, we'll focus on the semantics and the governance, right? And so I believe that metrics catalog is the one that more focused on the interfaces. And yep. based on what I found on the website, it's really helped eliminate some of the repetitive tasks by giving everyone a single place to collaborate, annotate data charts, and view personalized data feeds. Dive deeper into that, you know, can you give some examples of some of these repetitive tasks? And, you know, how does actually, from an analytical part of view, like metrics catalog, can eliminate some of those? Yeah, so, so when I think about the catalog, I really think it's, you know, geared towards governance and, and interfaces. And so I might just start by saying there's a really interesting attribute of a metric that I think is undervalued or, or not widely discussed. And that's that a, a metric is fairly stable in a company's history. You know, certainly the underlying definition can change, but metrics don't move teams. They, well, I guess they could move teams, but it's still the same metric. Metrics don't move around. The definitions might change, but they'll probably iterate slowly and eventually kind of, you know, get fairly locked down, especially the company's most important metrics. And so that actually makes them a really interesting vehicle for capturing institutional knowledge over time. So, you know, things like, annotations, the ability to basically say, this thing happened at this moment in time. And, you know, I want everyone in the company to know for all of time going forward that this event happened at this moment in time. And that's why this metric spiked. That is something that could probably save data organizations an unbelievable amount of time if done well. And, you know, I think we saw the beginnings of this at Airbnb, where the knowledge repo actually uh, which is another tool that Airbnb open source. It got some traction within Airbnb and some traction elsewhere, but ultimately it, it kind of didn't end up meeting the like lofty expectations that we had for it. But the value of it was really just that if some event happened and we wrote some post about it, then for every time you know somebody had to ask the question, "Hey, what happened on March fifteenth of you know November seventeenth of twenty sixteen? I don't remember the exact date." Well, we launched experiences and we pushed, you know, 20 articles out into the press. And so Airbnb's traffic spiked and we got more bookings and we got, you know, et cetera. And that kind of information just generally gets lost. And so the point of this catalog is, you know, at a very basic level to show the definition of the metric, show, you know, the owner, the tier of the metric, some of the governance, some of the data and the ability to kind of ask very basic questions of the data, slice metrics by different dimensions or apply, you know, year over year, year to date, cumulative sum, et cetera. Some of those kinds of filters onto the metric, but also just to capture, you know, real important institutional knowledge over time. And I think that that has the potential to really dramatically reduce these repetitive tasks of just having to ask the question of, you know, what happened in the past. On the other side of this, this kind of stretches over into interfaces, we have the ability to ask very basic questions of the metric in this UI. So what is bookings by country? What is bookings by et cetera? And so those kinds of questions can be asked by non-technical consumers. And because we have the semantics of how these metrics are defined, we can go and construct the SQL to then go and serve those data sets to consumers who Maybe they have a limited understanding of SQL, or maybe they have no understanding of kind of where the data is coming from, but it's this nice, safe experience with guardrails to ask these questions. And that's all built on top of the metric API. Thanks for 
putting together that interesting framework on how do you design this catalog. I really like the part about, you know, capturing institutional knowledge, you know, nice frame of the value prop that it can be. Adding on top of that is the more basic analytics question, simple one. And then lastly, matrix API, transform capability to generate a set of APIs to integrate matrix into any other enterprise tools for enriched data, dimensional modeling, and increased flexibility. So what are some of the key technical challenges in order to make metric integration work in practice? Yeah, so this is kind of the piece that I mentioned. For this truly to be a single source of truth, it has to connect to every possible tool. And so we built this API to kind of have some of the foundational pieces to connect to many different tools. So at the core, it's a GraphQL API, and we've then built various clients around that. So we have some open source uh, React components that allows companies to build front end on top of our metrics API. So they can, just like we build metrics in our uh, data catalog, it's using the same React components that we give to uh, our customers. They could build their own kind of internal tools. They could connect other tools, et cetera. But it's a very generic interface, right? It's very low level, right? If you're pulling directly from our GraphQL interface, you could really do just about anything from a you know, software engineering perspective. But really, the end consumer of this is primarily data analysts. And so for data analysts, we have three kind of foundational interfaces. So we have a command line tool, which allows them to do development of metrics. We have a Python interface that allows them to pull metrics into their, you know, Jupyter notebooks or whatever kind of, you know, uh, Python environment they're consuming from. There are a lot of, you know, interesting things happening in the, the kind of, I would say it's notebook, but it's more than just, you know, notebooks at this point space right now. There are a lot of interesting companies there. And then the last one is our JDBC, which allows us to connect directly to a BI tool. And, you know, we have a blog post on this on our website, but you can write API requests within SQL. So you could basically say, you know, give me, I'm going to keep going with the Airbnb example of bookings, give me bookings by day. It'll basically under the hood, build all the SQL to calculate that metric correctly, and then return that to the end user, which allows, you know, semi-technical people who can, maybe they don't really want to write joins, but they can write some kind of basic SQL operations, the ability to then go and safely query metrics and pull them into their existing workflows. Yeah, thanks for sharing that context and the importance of integration. And talking about integration, key strategy of Transform Roadmap is to integrate string data with other tools in the ecosystem, uh, such as Snowflake, Databricks, Trino, uh, just to name a few that I saw on the website. Mm-hmm. How do you see the concept of a metric store fit into the modern data analytics stack? Yeah, you know, the reality is this, because of some of those components I just named, you know, there's obviously all of the different data warehouses that we need to be able to connect to and you know, read from because we're writing queries against a company's underlying data warehouse. We don't have any of our own storage or compute. We're just writing queries against a company's data warehouse and serving those to their downstream tools. And so you know, downstream, we need to connect to just about everything that a companies want to use. And so that means connecting to you know, all of the various BI tools anything in kind of the product analytics or experimentation space or, you know, even like operational analytics type tools. And so 
you know, I think that the metric store actually plays a really interesting role in the modern data stack because so much of the modern data stack is about interoperability. And, you know, generally there is good interoperability across the tools that are being built in the modern data stack, but there's very little consistency of the logic that's being applied. And so the purpose of the metric store, as I see it, is to apply logic consistently in a way that allows companies to interoperate between all of these tools, but still have the correct definitions of their metrics, the correct data pipelines to do denormalization and serve those downstream. And so I think that the biggest part of our future is kind of just continuing to amplify the modern data stack by focusing on interoperability. And what I think that, that means is you know, continuing to work on these generic interfaces to consume from our tool. We expose 100% of what's in our tool. So all of the metadata, everything can be read through these two GraphQL APIs that we have. And you know, on the other end of this is how flexible is our framework to build all of the different metrics that companies want. There are complicated metrics to calculate. They're not even that complicated. They're just hard to kind of define. So a conversion metric, if you ask five data analysts to define a conversion metric, you're going to end up with at best three or four definitions of that conversion metric. And so how do you turn that into an abstraction and allow people to just say, this is a conversion metric. You know, I am conversion has to happen between these two events within, you know, seven days and I'm allowing multiple conversions or not. And so, you know, I think that the core of what our tool does is helps to push more interoperability. And so when I think about our roadmap for the future, it's just continuing to push on better interoperability, better interfaces, better flexibility of our framework to allow it to connect to other tools. Thanks for putting those points, logic consistency and flexibility definition. That's what I mentioned. Definitely like at a fundamental level, those are the things to care about when like a customer want to apply metric store within the stack. So we try to go over some of the more tenure questions for the rest of our conversation. I kind of want to focus more on all the other aspects of startup operation. So let's take off your data hat and put on your father hat. Yep. Hiring is a critical responsibility of any early stage startup father. What valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about transform missions and fit within transform cultural values? Yeah. So hiring is the most important thing as a founder. It's by far the most important thing. And I just, you know, anyone who's thinking about starting a company should just hear that, you know, <laughs> listen to that. It is true. And from the early days, James, Paul, and I thought a lot about culture and the type of environment that we wanted to work in. We had a lot of really positive experiences between us and you know, some, some negative experiences. I think generally more positive than negative, but we wanted to kind of take everything that we've learned about the environments that we've been in and try to make Transform a really, really great place to work. And that, in my mind, is the foundation of building a great culture, building a great team. And so basically what we did is we laid out our values as three founders as one of the very first things we did. Even before talking in depth about product or the company that we were trying to start, we spent a lot of time talking about our values and the ways of working that we wanted to kind of instill in the company. And it's probably one of the most impactful things that we did because 
it allowed us to recruit some of our first few employees, which, you know, ultimately allowed us to kind of continually reshape those values and those ways of working in a way that allowed us to continue to grow. And so people really want to understand what they're getting into and setting your values and ways of working early on intentionally allows you to recruit those people and allows you to build an environment where those people will be successful and they will want to protect that environment. So that I would say is the foundation. We've been, even recently, we've been kind of preparing a blog post about some of our values. We have a video going up on our website about, about some of them. It's, you know, it's incredibly important. And I think underrated in most startups where people just assume if you get great people together, they will, they will make a great culture. And, and I think that that's might be true, but I don't necessarily want to take that risk. I'd rather you know, be intentional about it. The next thing that I would say is that talent leads to more talent and the best talent wants to work with the best talent. You have to find really great people from the beginning. I think that, you know, the most underrated skill for a founder is definitely whether they can recruit amazing people. You absolutely have to decide on what a hiring bar looks like. And then the decision, you know, to lower that hiring bar will impact your future recruiting to the extent that making the decision to hire somebody in the short term might actually have longer term consequences that will prevent you from hiring the right people in the future. And so it's very, very tempting when the right person is in front of you to just decide that you're going to hire them because you have such a need for this role that you know you make the decision to lower your technical bar or your culture bar or, you know, whatever it is that you're recruiting for. And so hiring great people, keeping that bar high allows you to continue to hire great people and keep that bar high. And I think I've been in environments before where I've seen this not happen. And it's something that we're working really, really hard to just maintain an exceptional level of talent at Transform. And then the last part is that the way that you end up in that situation where you have the right person in front of you, you, you need them so desperately that you just decide to hire them is that you don't plan for your hiring. And so hiring is strategy. You have to come up with a plan for who you want to hire when, and then you need to execute. And if you're not executing, then you will most likely find yourself in that situation where you just need to hire someone. And so this includes, you know, defining roles before needing to hire them, getting feedback on those roles, collecting leads, collecting people's feedback on those roles, like the feedback of your potential leads on what that role could look like, speaking informally with you know folks in different spaces to learn before you're even going out to hire that person. And then you know once you get to the right place, like narrow your focus and hire the right person. And if you've done the work up front, you know you should have a pool of candidates and you should be able to kind of you know really assess that. So yeah, I would say that you know, the top three there are defining values and ways of working early on, hiring amazing people because they will lead to more amazing people, and then really planning out your hiring and recognizing that hiring is strategy. Yeah, thanks for recapping those key points and yeah, putting your thoughts in hiring. And, and I think a lot of people listening who are doing this can learn from your framework. Just like, kind of curious, given that framework on your actual hiring at Transform, like you said, you know, starting in 2020, during that phase, what are some of the helpful network that you use to get the first batch of 
Yeah. Because I'm, I'm sure like Airbnb is definitely like the most obvious one, but was there any other communities or peer support group, professional group that you, Paul and James, rely upon to attract these potential great employees? I wish that I had a good answer for that, but the answer is just everywhere. You just, I mean, it's everywhere. You have to, you always have to be recruiting everywhere you go. You know, so much outbound, so many outbound messages were sent to recruit the team that we have. So many conversations, so many introductions. It's, I, I don't think that there was one particular place, but the one nice thing is that if you are further on in your career, when you decide to start a company, you almost definitely have a great network and that network whether that network leads directly to hiring people, which in our case, it has led to a number of people. Mm-hmm. It will lead to, you know, second degree hiring people, right? Like getting connections and then hiring those people. Yeah, thanks for putting that in perspective. Finding early adopters is also another notoriously challenging thing for any enterprise product. What's some of the challenge that your team had to overcome in order to find some of these early design partners slash Lyle customers? Yeah. So I think that the biggest thing is that nobody knew what a metric store was or what the metrics layer was in 2019 when we first started talking to companies. Before we raised any money or before even James and Paul left Airbnb, I talked to about 50 different companies and there was a very wide range of feedback of, I don't understand what this is or how it's different than my existing tools all the way through to I saw that tool that Airbnb has. It's absolutely amazing. I like desperately want this tool, right? And so, you know, early on, got all of those connections really through network. And so, again, network is like the greatest way to bootstrap early design partnerships. I think that the other part of this is understanding what those relationships are. You shouldn't be trying to you know, you shouldn't be trying to optimize for making money. You shouldn't be trying to optimize for selling your product vision to them. Like so much of that relationship has to be getting their feedback and listening. And one of the hardest things to do as a founder is to, is to, to basically merge. Like there are two very different types of conversations. There's, I am selling you on my vision and you should you know, buy Transform or you should invest in us and you have to know how to have those conversations. And then on the other side of this are the types of conversations which you should be having with your design partners, which are you just asking questions. Like you're just asking as many questions as you can. And if they ask you a question back, share your opinion, share your thoughts. But so much of this has to be about learning from them. And so... You know, ultimately, you will find people who believe in what you're doing, and you will identify people who have, in you know, what I would call like a product vision uh, fit, which is you've started to build something which fits a vision that you believe in and that they believe in, and then they will choose to invest in it, and it will. To be totally frank, like, you know, they should be, <laughs> they should be uh, getting paid to use, you know, use the tool. But they're at a big company that can kind of afford, you know, to take risky bets. And this is a bet that will hopefully pay off, but they will be giving you much more value than you will be giving them. And so acknowledging that is incredibly important. Thanks for sharing those ideas on how to stride that relevant 
partnership between mm-hmm. you know uh, one startup and then potential early adopters. I think yeah, just getting that feedback loop quick and and fast is critical to accelerate the product lifecycle development. Yeah. As Transform grows, recruit more people and expand this year. What are some of the go-to-market initiatives that you are most excited about? So I think that there are a few, but you know the one that I'm going to highlight is just that, you know, I think that we have been relatively quiet about what we're building, and you know, not for any other reason, but that we had a bunch of great, you know, design partners and people to give us feedback, and. We felt like we were kind of, you know, getting a lot from that, and we wanted to have the focus to go out and build the product. And so, you know, we've been relatively quiet, and we've also accumulated a ton of ideas. There are a ton of learnings that I think still have not been shared about Airbnb's experience using tools like this, about Branch's experience trying to kind of think about building tools like this. And so, I think that the most important one here is just that. We already started this with our more public announcement of the company a month ago, but just putting out more content, sharing more about what we've seen and what we, you know, think the future looks like. Mm-hmm. And the really fun part about that is a lot of these ideas are novel. Like so many of the ideas that we've even discussed today are novel, and I think have yet to been, you know, yet to be shared broadly with the data analytics community. And so. I'm just excited to write more. I'm excited to, you know, have more folks on our team share what they know, share what they're learning with the broader community. And I think that ultimately, you know, I think that to some extent, what we're doing is category creation, and I think that that takes a lot of education. Mm-hmm. And so, the pain points that this product is aiming at solving are ubiquitous. Every single person that I've talked to in the data analytics space feels them to some extent, and so. You know, pushing out more understanding of the potential solutions, I think, is you know really interesting and, and something that I'm excited about doing. Yeah, it's a great spot to be in. You know, that blue ocean space where where you innovate. We talk about you know relationship with employees, with customers, as well as the community. The last group I kind of want to get your thought on is the partnership with investors. So, Transform raised a Series A round worth 24.5 million. Dollars earlier this year, led by index ventures and red point ventures. What fundraising advice could you give for data founders who are seeking the right investors for their startups? Yeah, so I, I think the most important part there is seeking the right investors. So, as much as possible, especially in the early days, you should ideally not have a time bound on when you go out and fundraise and think about taking money. You know, so many people talk to investors and they make the decision of whether. They're going to work with this person for the next, you know, 10 plus years in weeks, and that to me is just absolutely crazy. The way that I thought about our fundraising was, I almost thought of our conversations as, yeah, certainly I need to, you know, pitch these companies and share ideas, but I thought about it more as, this is somebody who. Will need to believe in the values, the mission of this company, and they will want to care about the culture as much as we care about it. And so, the longer that I have to spend time with them to talk about ideas, the more that I will see whether they're truly committed to this, whether they are, you know, a good culture fit with the company, just like an employee would be, or a co-founder, etc. And so, you know, I think that we've 
found that in Index and Redpoint, and we talked to a lot of different firms and a lot of really great ones. But just the relationship that we have with, you know, Brian Offit and Shardul Shah at Index, Pat Chase and Tamash at Redpoint are, you know, it's I just couldn't imagine having a better relationship with investors. And it's ultimately, you know, the founder is going to do the majority of the work to make the company successful. But there are moments where you really need your investors to give you some guidance, some advice, or you just need you know them to be there to help with some kind of difficult situation. And so taking the time to find the right person who you want to be the first person you call, right? Like people talk about that a lot. It's a real thing, right? Finding that right person is the most important thing. So yeah, take your time, find the right person. Yeah, for sure. Both Index and Redpoint have this very too long blog post, like explain their decision to make yeah. investment and transform, which I kind of really shows, reflect on your point about like how, you know, obviously there's very deliberate conversation between you and them. And so I'll be sure to include that in the show notes as well. So just show us a concept on the importance of providing that right partnership. So Nick, at this part of conversation, I want to move into final closing segment. In which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions, and then you know you can give the quick answers for the listeners. Number one, and then three people in the broader data community whose work you admire. All right. So the first one here is not a person; it's a bunch of different people, but it's really just the group of people that I worked with in the early days on Airbnb's metrics repo. So, you know, in kind of the order of the people who I worked with on this. Will Moss, Jonathan Parks, Aaron Keys, they were really, really exceptional mentors to me. And I'm forever grateful for their support. And then, of course, my two co-founders, James and Paul. That's the first one. I'm bucking them all. I'm sorry I had to name a bunch of people, but quite literally, it, you know, altered the course of my career. And so, and you know, I'm still go back to these people for advice and guidance. And then two others. So Max Bushman joined Airbnb in 2014, maybe just a month after me. And he wrote Airflow as his very first project. I was writing a bunch of cron jobs at the time. It was miserable. They kept failing, you know, at at 3 a.m. Nobody knew why. And he is just so relentless in building the tools that he thinks need to exist. And he's so smart and also so kind and helpful. He was helpful to me. I was probably the first person to, uh, to build an airflow pipeline. And so uh, he was so incredibly helpful to me in getting started with that tool and just so patient and taught me so much. And then obviously he went on to build Superset and now is building Preset. So I really, really respect him. He gets so much done. It's just, it's wild. And then the last person is someone who I've been working with more recently, Emily Shario, who is the head of data at Netlify. And you know, she just has so many different things that she's pursuing and I see her crushing it in like every single one of them. And what I think is so exceptional about it is that she just adds so much value everywhere she goes. Like every community she's a part of, every blog post she writes, every conversation I have with her, every meetup I see her attend, like she's just adding value everywhere. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's something that I respect and I hope that I can emulate even just a little bit of that. So, Yeah, thanks for sharing those. Be sure to include those profiles in your show notes. 
Uh, as well, number two, what is one book that I would recommend for people to, especially you know, data practitioners, to cultivate an entrepreneurial mindset? Yeah, so I think that management is incredibly important, and it's something that people often find themselves just kind of pushed into or ill-equipped for in kind of the, like the early days, and then they navigate to it and figure it out. And one of the books that I read was High Output Management by Andy Grove. And I think it just really helped me. I think it probably geared towards managers at larger companies and kind of understanding management structures at larger companies. But I think it gives you a lens that as an IC, you know, most people just don't have. And so, you know, reading that book has helped me a lot. I think that it should be a requirement for all managers to read that book. And I rely on a lot of different parts of it today in my day-to-day job. Awesome. And then lastly, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage data practitioners on Twitter. What could you tweet about? So generally, I think that we need more collaboration between data tools. This is going to be over 140 characters, or maybe it's 280 now. I can't remember. But I think we need more collaboration between data tools. There are... So many different opportunities that I think will make data analysts' lives much better. And so, you know, we talked about interoperability. I'm really excited about generally the kind of ethos of the modern data stack. There are interesting projects like Open Lineage that I think, you know, allow for us to potentially cut through years of integrations and frustration. And, you know, just generally, I think that it will enable more cooperation and kind of connectedness between the various tools that companies are using. I see is a foster collaboration, really everyone working together to expand the pie and then, you know, bring more adoption of analytics to, to the enterprise. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, Nick, I think that's, that's a great way to conclude our conversation. I really enjoy kind of learning about your early interest in math and economics, your first job at BackRock working on emerging market debt, your decision to join Airbnb, leading the growth team, building experimentation platform, moving into PM for ML infrastructure, some of the learnings at branch, especially building ML feature store for an analysis mm-hmm. startup, as well as your current journey with transform the concept of matrix store, all the valuable learning being a father running a startup, building relationship with employees, customers, the community, as well as investors. What I really enjoy is just your methodological and slow approach, but very deliberate way of approaching all these areas within your career as well as within the startup operation side of things as well. So I'll be sure to include everything in the show notes and listeners can have a chance to take a look and especially read some of the blog posts that you have written as well as the one that you plan to write for the remaining of the year and keep in the loop with some exciting movement to transform going forward. Yeah, I really enjoyed our chat and I hope you have a great rest of your day. I really, really appreciate all of that. Thanks so much, James. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.